Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you quarantining? Well, I'm still here. I've got plenty of time to study the scriptures and uh, make Facebook Live videos, which some of you may have seen, or if you haven't, check it out on my Facebook page. I did one about Numbers chapter 9, and that was a lot of fun. I'll try to do some of these maybe once every week or so. Oh, gosh, once a week. Goodness. Yeah. That's kind of what I where I am with that. So doing these videos, I'm usually talking about a text that I know fairly well. Um, so it's, what text it's fine. don't you know fairly well, bro? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, <laughs> what text well, don't you know? <laughs> well, ironically, the Book of Mormon I don't know as well as the Bible. I I really don't. Could have fooled me, uh, brother. Could have fooled me. Anyway. Well, anyway, let's get in. <laughs> are we ready to get into the text of the Book of Mormon? Um, I, I'm totally ready. Do you want to talk about the uh, chronological context, or do we yeah. before we go? Yeah, okay. let's let's get into that. So here's the situation. So there's sort of a scholarly uh, disagreement about what exactly happened in terms of the uh, order of the dictation of the text of the Book of Mormon as we have it. There's one. Uh, so the first thing that we have is that the lost 116 pages that Martin Harris borrowed from the prophet Joseph Smith took the first part of the Book of Mormon and that went away somewhere and it's either lost or stolen or we don't know what happened. We still don't know what happened to it. But then the question is, what happened next? There's two options. Either Joseph basically picked up where he left off and started dictating, and then after finishing the Book of Moroni, went back and dictated the replacement, which is you know First and Second Nephi through um, Omni and the Words of Mormon. So did he do it that way, or did he just start over once the 116 pages were lost and start over with First Nephi? and transcribe the whole text in the order that it's published today. Uh. And most scholars, and um, I'm all along with this consensus, seem, uh, the evidence seems to indicate that he started with Mosiah. He just basically picked up where he left off w and dictated Mosiah through the end of Moroni and then rewound to the beginning once he got the revelation to replace the lost book of Lehi with the other, the small plates, and that's and then you have first Nephi through uh, the words of Mormon. Now, here's the interesting thing about that is. Yeah. What are the, what, what's the implications for this? Or are we not well, the, there yet? Well, some of the implications are one is for missionary work, because my theory is that when we when we go to investigators and ask them to read the Book of Mormon, a lot of people get stuck in the Nephi's. But I think having them start with Mosiah the text that we're going to talk about today is really exciting. You've got um, a great king here, King Benjamin. You've got this great sermon we'll talk about. I think it really, mm -hmm. I mean, in, in Mosiah and Alma, you've got a lot of good action, a lot of good story. It's pretty easy to follow along and, and figure out what's going on um, compared to getting lost in all the Isaiah chapters of Second Nephi and then people stop. Uh -huh. <laughs> so if you read it in that order, you get the Mosiah and Alma up front you don't end with a tragedy because the tragedy comes uh, in the middle of your reading and then you get to rewind right. and then you start over and then have second Nephi towards the end when you're when you're really almost finished. So I think that's probably the best way of reading the Book of Mormon for new beginners. But mm. I think some of where the implications for uh, history come in is like looking at the chronology of the restoration of the church and like what did – um, 
what did Joseph and Oliver know when? Because they were baptized in the middle of, of this translating the Book of Mormon. Um, it might have been after, you know, it makes more sense that they um, they looked at, they, uh, and I think we have some documentation from this, is they ha had already done second, uh, they had already done third Nephi and the visit of the Savior, and that's really what prompted them to get baptized and to ask about baptism. And so a lot of a lot of these things make sense. And also in terms of the transcription, some of it maybe makes more sense if the Nephi documents are towards the end. I we I don't need to take up too much time in this, but I think it's just a very interesting thing to think about. And, and it actually kind of makes sense historically because what happens is probably at the very beginning when, when Joseph lost the 116 pages, he didn't yet know whether he was going to get them back or not. Like if he got them back, he didn't need to redo them. So he probably just started where he left off thinking, oh, maybe I'll get these back or maybe they'll turn up. And, and then only after it was clear that they weren't going to turn up, then he went to the Lord and then had a backup plan uh, of, of including first – Nephi through the words of Mormon. But what's interesting about that is is that God has backup plans. A lot of people think that, oh, no, there's all this narrow tightrope that we have to walk, and if something goes wrong and it all goes wrong. But, like, God has built in backup plans centuries before we even need them. I think that's right. just so beautiful, um, especially for those of us who are marginalized who think that there's no plan for us. I mean, like, there's backup plans that you don't even know about. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of all I wanted to say about that and we can just get into the text itself sweet awesome well before we get into the text like really get into it um what we have at the beginning here is a um of mosiah we have the king of the nephite people king benjamin he's nearing the end of his life and he basically calls all of his people to gather at the temple to give an accounting of his service to pass the kingdom on to his son whose name is mosiah and then deliver unto them the word of God. That's basically what we have in these first uh, four or five chapters of the book of Mosiah. We're only going to be talking about chapters one through three today. It's easily one of my favorite sermons in the entire book of Mormon. So I, I really can't wait to just jump into it. Now, as far as uh, how we want to talk about this, I believe in terms of order, we can go by the verses. I think you got something you want to talk about before we actually get into the first thing I want to talk about, which is in uh, Mosiah 2.17. Do you have anything that you want to discuss in 10 through 14 that is worth discussing? Yeah, well, I just want to back up and talk a little bit about, um, so the context here, you just mentioned gathering all of the peoples together. And if you look at verse 5 in chapter 2, it's really clear that their definition of family is a little bit broader. It's not just a nuclear family, but it's a, including extended family because verse 5 says, They pitched their tents round about every man according to his family, consisting of his wife and his sons and his daughters and their sons and their daughters. From the eldest down to the youngest, every family being separate one from another. So it this isn't just like a, a mom, a dad, and their kids. It's the the sons-in-laws and the daughters-in-law and their grandkids, and it's basically large uh, extended families here. And I think mm -hmm. that's something to keep in, uh, into account as to what, what does family even mean. And it, it, when you take the 
the logical implications of the Nephite narrative, you end up having all of the Nephites being one family. And then when you get to fourth Nephi, you get the Nephites and the Lamanites all one family. So I think this should really sort of problematize and challenge what we th imagine in our head when we hear the word family. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. But yeah, let's get into what it says in verses 10 through 10 and 11. I really like how King Benjamin has extreme humility. And in some ways, he democratizes the Nephite society by saying, look, I'm not any better than you. I am not um, going to tax you and make and live off of your labor. I'm going to labor myself like we're all equal. I think the and it's not just words it's actions instead of just saying we're all equal you know there's a lot of people in the church that say we're all equal and then don't act like it but here king benjamin literally acts like it he has a lot of humility he says you know i'm just a mortal man i am verse 11 i am like as yourselves he talks about his weaknesses i think that's the best in leaders is when they talk about their weaknesses and don't pretend to have it all uh together certainly um and then in verses you know, 12 through 14, he says that I have not so sought gold or silver. And then verse 13, I really love because he says, Neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves of one another, nor that ye should murder or plunder or steal or commit adultery, nor even have I suffered that ye should commit any manner of wickedness and have taught you that ye should keep the commandments of the Lord in all things which he hath commanded you. And then he goes on to talk about how he labored with his own hands. And so he backs up his words with his actions. But let's look at his words. The first thing he talks about is prison abolition. He says, look, I'm not going to imprison you in dungeons. And the second thing he talks about is the abolition of slavery. Like he says, um, he, he condemns slavery. And I think this is really profound because when this was published in 1830, that was a major issue in America, of course, is you still had yeah. legalized slavery. And I just think it is so profound and so prophetic that this speaks um, around issues of economic justice, racial justice, um, criminal justice, all of these other things. And I think we'll get into more of the economic justice in, of course, in Chapter 4. Yeah, yeah. Real quick, a question I got about this, though. Do you feel do you feel like this implication of abolition may have influenced Joseph Smith's uh, views on slavery? Well, I it it's very likely it is. I think um, it's all about the Book of Mormon. Really, is all about bringing people to Christ and bringing people's full selves to Christ. And if right. people are imprisoned or enslaved, you can't be your full selves. And I think that that right. really is the heart of the Book of Mormon. And I think eventually Joseph was was brought about to the position of prison abolition and the abolition of slavery, um, in part because of his mm -hmm. own experiences in life with being wrongly imprisoned, but also um, uh, just just having the witness of the Book of Mormon that all are alike unto God and and seeing this very um, almost American democratization that there's no nobility, that there's no um there's no hierarchy of people that you're all equal including the king is literally equal to everyone else laboring for his uh, own uh, livelihood and i think this is just really really profound yeah definitely and i think it it's really radical in the ancient world to have something 
so democratic. Uh, about the only other parallel would be would be uh, you know Athens and some of the demo democracies of Greece. But even those were imperfect because only the like landowning male citizens were citizens, um, and uh, and they also had slaves in in Greece. So you had a democracy of the few but not yeah. of everyone. And I think this really democratizes everyone in the Nephite society. And I think that's why King Benjamin was, was remembered for centuries afterward and really honored as, as sort of this founding father of the Nephite society as it, as it turned out. And I feel like we're going to see a little bit, a lot more about what informs, um, about what for, what informs King Benjamin's attitude towards leadership as we get into the chapters later that, specifically mention Christ and the atonement and the the people's relationship to God. I think we're going to get a lot more into the things that inform King Benjamin's leadership style once we get down there. But is there anything else you want to say about these verses before we move on to uh, the later verses? Yeah, no, we can move on to the verses about service. Awesome, awesome. Now, speaking of profound, I feel like what's so profound about the uh, verses that talk about uh, service uh, particularly Mosiah 2.17, the scripture mastery, is the implication that the first and second great commandments are really one and the same. You know, we see this in a few right. other verses. We see this in Matthew 25. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. We see it in First John chapter 4. Uh, if a man say, I love God and and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And we see it in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law, the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and these others besides are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. The implication in all of these is that if you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love, then, is to obey the whole law, and to obey the whole law is to love God. So when Jesus first gives us the first and second great commandments, oh my gosh, like, so check, 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 check this out. When Jesus first gives us the first commandment, first and second great commandments, it's in response to a question that asks, what is the great commandment? Someone asks him, what is the great commandment? He gives them the first and second great commandment. So like, I don't know. That's just really cool. But anyway, to get back to this verse, yeah. which speaks specifically about service, this has tremendous implications for folks on the margins because if serving others is serving God, then the most urgent service required, according to Matthew 25, is to the most vulnerable. And who are the most vulnerable to COVID-19 right now? Like, we've been new that the elderly are at risk, it's also being reported that black communities are being hit hard, as are LGBTQ folks, as are poor folks. Like, who did Jeffrey R. Holland direct our focus to after he talked about COVID-19 briefly? He spoke specifically about the poor, the hungry, the children, and the ethnically, racially, and religiously dispossessed. Obviously, we can add women, LGBTQs, the elderly, the disabled, and more to that list. But if serving our fellow man is serving God, then it stands to reason that God would want us to prioritize our efforts as his people on tending to the needs of the most vulnerable. Yeah, I think in some ways fighting the virus and fighting all of these social and economic injustices, it's not two separate fights. And I think 
the reality, the lived reality on the ground, which is how Jesus did his ministry, proves that you mm-hmm. can't separate them. Like this right. virus has right. impacts, differential impacts on different communities, and without structures in place that allow people access to health care, access to um, uh, economic assistance, all these other things, you just magnify the disparity, um, which is the, the exact opposite of the way King Benjamin equalized everyone and said, look, uh, we're all equal. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get into that once we get to verses like 20 through 26. We're going to talk about that equalizer that he that he gives us. But um, yeah, and I loved what you said about the the two great commandments are really inseparable. You can't yep, yep. claim. And I, I think there's some people in the church that want to try to find a balance between them, like their intention and their you've got to sort of. Um, sort of moderate and and do some of one and some of the other and kind of balance them out. But no, they're not in different directions. They're really in the same direction because Correct. the best way of worshiping God is to take care of God's creation. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, that is his work and his glory. And exactly. And I think just co sort of co-creating a, a place of justice and wholeness and, and faith and hope is really what this is all about, which is why I think the Book of Mormon is such a great foundation for activism yeah, because yeah. the two texts that I l- most people say, well, why are you doing LGBT activism? Like one of the texts is this one right here. Whenever you're serving the LGBT community, you're serving God. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of needs there. And the other great text for activism is, of course, the Mosiah 18 text around um, mourn in, with those who mourn, comfort those who stand in need of comfort. I mean, almost all activism for LGBTs and any other mi- marginalized group can either be counted as mourning with those who mourn or serving those and get get that gets counted as, as serving God. I just really mm-hmm. think that there should be no no suspicion at all of people who are trying to labor to make life in the church better for LGBTQ people. Right. I mean, that is right. should not be a controversy at all. No, it shouldn't. Like, I'm going to say that the heart of the issue when it comes to affirming versus non-affirming or anti-racism versus racism in the text or into our theology, like, it's not folks prioritizing the second great commandment over the first or vice versa. Like, what the issue is, people just have different theologies, contrasting understandings of the gospel conflicting views of the grand narrative of scripture and dare i say it seriously seriously divergent understandings of jesus christ and who he was and what he taught yeah and i think what's what's amiss in the theology is your view towards humanity because there's some people who think that lgbt people or people of color or women are sort of accessories right. to the to the main characters in the story that the main characters in the story are going to be straight white men and that everyone else is just kind of extra and like sort of who cares if they get what they need or whatever it's kind of the you're you're just supporting characters in the story but i'm here to say that we're not supporting characters we're the heroes of the story that we tell and I think that's the difference yep. in the theology is who's telling the story, who's the hero of the story, who's the central character. And when you look at what Jesus did, he really affirmed the humanity of everyone and centered the marginalized. And I think that's yep. the difference. It's not that that you're prioritizing love for God or love for neighbor. It's it's you're recognizing who is your neighbor, which is really what, what yep. Jesus' question he was responding to. And I think mm-hmm. – 
I think that should change everything when you realize that the, the fundamental difference isn't like who's more faithful or who's more orthodox or who's more doctrinally correct, but it's who has the, the, the view of humanity that coheres with what the teachings of the scriptures are. And I think mm-hmm. if you try to take us as marginalized people and say, oh, you're just extra or you're expendable or it's not really about you, you know, it, if it works for 95% of the people, it's good enough. I'm like, no. That's that's the exact wrong theory that Jesus never would have supported. He has a whole parable about that. Like, <laughs> there's a whole parable. There's yes. three whole parables about that. So, like, yes. Yeah, we can't be doing that. But anyway, to bring this back to, uh, you know, the point of Mosiah 217 and to perhaps put some practical application on this, what this looks like in the context of serving the marginalized, serving the most vulnerable right now, staying at home is serving God. When you really think about it, you know. Oh Just wait, so you've been so you've been serving God a long time. <laughs> I've been serving. Why you gotta out me like that, bro? <laughs> yeah, I've been serving God for a long time. Like right now, in the midst of this pandemic, one of the greatest acts of service you can perform is to stay home. You know, like the people who are most vulnerable to this whole thing are people on the margins and. You know, what are we saying about how much we love God or how much we want to serve God when we don't stay home? Like, we got to think about that. Like calling out, in addition, calling out our racist family members and friends when they be making those jokes. That's serving God. Speaking in church, speaking up in church, rather, when someone reinforces homophobia in the name of God. That's serving God. Creating an environment in which our children can learn without fearing for their lives. That's serving God. I could go on, but, you know, the point is, if our God demands we serve him, then as a people, he is demanding the dismantling of oppressive institutions or anything that places a stumbling block between our siblings and their peace. Yeah, and that reminded me of this a statistic that I read online, so I'm not sure of the source, So, and it was online, so I'm not sure exactly, but it seems, it seems realistic. I read that only one out of every five black people has a job that they can do at home. And I think that is that is a structural inequality that that means that there's going to be a disparate impact right on the black community. And um, yeah, I just we have to think about all these things together that they're not in, inseparable. Yeah. Do you have anything else to uh, add about uh, Mosiah 217 or any of these scriptures that talk about service before we move on to the great equalizer? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about what it what King Benjamin says in verse 18, he punctuates this with his own example. He says, Behold, ye have called me your king, and if I whom ye call your king do labor to serve you, then ought not ye to labor to serve one another. So he, he this isn't just words for him. Like he has been um, laboring for his own livelihood, and not only that, but he's also been working for other people and serving them. And I think that is the best way of preaching is to follow it up with your action. Right. That's leadership right there, man. This starts in about verse 20 or so. And uh, this to me is the great equalizer that regardless of how much privilege you possess, let me just read these verses real quick or from these verses. This is King Benjamin. He says, I say unto you, my brethren, that if you should render all the thanks and praise, which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who has created you and has kept you and preserved you and has caused that ye should rejoice and has granted that ye should live in peace one with another. I say unto you that if ye should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you 
from day to day, lending you breath that you may live and move according to your own will and even supporting you from one moment to the other. If you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants. So there it is right there. There is the equalizer. Like King Benjamin is basically telling us that regardless of how much privilege you possess in this life due to race, money, status, etc., no one has enough and no one can do enough to break even with God. That all puts that that puts all of us on equal ground. And not only that, it puts us all in a state of dependency. King Benjamin seems to imply that this understanding informed his leadership style and his subsequent labor among the people. In verse 26, I whom ye call your king am no better than ye yourselves are, for I am also of the dust. And ye behold that I am old and am about to yield up this mortal frame to its mother earth. This idea of all of us being dependent on God, that's going to be explored more in detail in chapter 4. So we'll, I guess, save that discussion for then. But for now, a simple acknowledgement that we're ultimately all the same in the eyes of God because we're all dependent on him adds context to the time, to the themes and ways we hear some version of all are alike unto God. That one thing that we have in common in this common identity as children of God that is most important is that all of us have a debt that we cannot pay without Christ. That alone should make us look at each other differently. That's probably the biggest reason I believe that uh, King Benjamin has led in the way that he has because he views himself as the same as everybody else solely on the virtue that he is dependent on the same God that all of them are. Right, right. That's so beautiful. And that reminds me of something that I'm going to do this Easter that I read in the uh, in this in the April Enzyme, and so Joanna Brooke Anderson, I think it is. I can't remember her name, but she wrote in and saying, said what I'm going to do uh, is go to a, a cemetery on Easter morning, just like the women did. They went to the tomb and sort of at sunrise and had an experience and i think that's so profound you can go to the that's what i'm going to do i've never done this before but i'm going to do that and go and see how death really is the great equalizer like okay. all of the people everyone at the gravestones that i see that will be someone for whom christ died and every one of those tombs will have someone who will be raised from the dead on one day yeah. and really be around the great equalizer and not only is death the great equalizer but also christ because christ will will give an opportunity for life for everyone for salvation yeah. for everyone there will be this opportunity um and no one will be able to boast before god on that day and that remind what you just said reminded me of that something that you said reminded me of something that's in uh, mosiah 3 when you talked about everybody's going to have a chance everybody's going to have an opportunity Chapter 3, verses 11, 16, and 18 talk about those who die young, those who die without knowing the will of God, or those who ignorantly sin. His blood atoneth for the sins of those who have fallen by the transgression of Adam, who have died not knowing the will of God concerning them, or who have ignorantly sinned. If it were possible that little children could sin, they could not be saved. But I say unto you, they are blessed, for behold, as in Adam, or by nature, they fall, even so the blood of Christ atoneth for their sins. For behold, he judgeth, his judgment is just, and the infant perisheth not, that dieth in his infancy. But men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves, and become as little children, and believe that salvation was, and is, and is to come. 
in and through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord omnipotent. So a theme that has been explored before, thanks to, uh, thanks to Margaret Olson Hemming and Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh's book, The Book of Mormon for the Least of These, is that no opportunities that God wants for his children are going to be held back forever. The Book of Mormon earlier spoke of voices that would testify against their murderers from the, from the earth, from the dust, showing that no voice will be silenced. Here we read that ultimately no one will be denied the opportunity to partake of the atonement and that if anyone does not partake of it, it will only be because of choices made in this life or the, ne- or the next. This to me is justice, like to remove every barrier impeding one's path to their rights and privileges. That to me is justice. That is what the atonement does. This is the crux of liberation theology, to model social justice after the ultimate justice of the atonement of Jesus Christ, where Jesus removes the barriers of sin and death from God's children. How can it not also be the work of Christ to remove the barriers of patriarchy, white supremacy, uh, straight supremacy, and more and more to clear the paths to, to rights and privileges that all people are entitled to by virtue of their divine parentage. If this is the work of Christ, then this is the work of his disciples to dismantle these oppressive structures that keep us from partaking of all the rights and privileges that we are entitled to by virtue of our divine birthright. Yeah, and that really coincides with what I said earlier about backup plans. And I should stop and say that, you know, there's a lot of people, I think culturally, this isn't even in our texts, but culturally, a lot of Latter-day Saints think that there's this narrow covenant path that you have to check off all these boxes. You have to get your Eagle Scout. You have to go on a mission. You have to go to BYU. You have to go to, you know, you have to get sealed in the temple. You have to do all these things. And it's just this very narrow tightrope that you have to walk. And I'm like, God has backup plans upon backup plans. And that's really phrasing it from our mm-hmm. point of view because I think for God – um, a lot of these things were planned out from the beginning. Like the atonement is not a backup plan. Like we were intended to be perfect and we messed up the first plan. And so we got to have grace as a backup. Mm -hmm. Grace is not a backup plan. It's plan a, but I think from our perspective, a lot of these other things, um, whether they seem to be exceptions or workarounds or, um, other ways of accommodating people such as, you know, accommodating children who die without, uh, uh, before age of eight, you know, or accommodating people who die without yeah. ever hearing the gospel. There's ways that God is going to, to let know there. I mean, there's no one's going to be lost forever. There's no situation is completely right. lost. There's always going to be second chances. This is kind of what I was, one of my Passover, uh, the, the things that I said in my Passover message on my video, which I think everyone should go and watch. Um, but yeah, like God's is so much bigger and so much smarter and so much more thoughtful than, than a lot of us culturally think God is. And I think to me, it goes back to the family, the pre-mortal family council. Like I would not have accepted the plan if there weren't place for me in the plan as a gay man i'm like yeah of course there's i would not have come to this earth and said yes to the plan if there weren't some amazing place in the plan for me um so i just think we're culturally we're we're really narrowed by a lot of these things 
and we really um and i think once we go back to the sources especially our texts we find so much uh, so much more broader and expansive approach to these things so we got a little bit of time left do you have anything do you want to discuss uh those parts of the atonement you wanted to briefly touch upon in mosiah chapter three well what i think is really curious about this is an angel revealed chapter three to king benjamin um, these are things about the coming Christ that he would not have known without this foresight and, and revelation. And I think it's interesting why Mormon chose in his abridgment to to put this in uh, this embedded document in here and here. And I think it's so brilliant because what we have in verse uh, in chapter two, it says, where was it? Oh, chapter 2, verse 8. Because of the large multitude, not everyone was able to hear, so that King Benjamin caused that his words should be written down and sent out. And it's probable that this written record ended up being the source for this part of the Book of Mormon. All right. And I probably am assuming that Mormon is quoting this source directly and um, not really paraphrasing it because it's so beautiful and because of the precision of the words this allows Mormon as the sort of narrator to show look hey all these because Mormon came you know centuries after Christ Mormon was a Christian who who already knew of Christ but he's using this as a source to say hey look these people knew about Christ beforehand mm. I think that's a really powerful faith building feature of the text here is that you've got this rich understanding of Christ before Christ even comes. Mm. And I think that that gives us hope. I mean, that should give us marginalized people hope because we're in a spot where we don't have our full dignity and liberation realized yet at this point in the restoration of the church. And of course mm -hmm. the church, I love what, what President Nelson said saying he said you know if you think that the church is fully restored just wait and you know there's more to be unfold you know eat your vitamins and and buckle up and i really like that that kept coming up throughout the uh this past general conference like at least three or four times the idea of the restoration being ongoing was brought up during the course of the general general conference and i thought that was pretty profound yeah i thought that was i thought that was great too i think there's just so many um like social and cultural barriers to change in the church. It's like the doctrine. People will talk about the doctrine. I don't think the doctrine's a problem. As soon as we get our act together as people, like we will understand the doctrine so much better. That yeah. that's, uh, I think that's pretty clear. Um, it's just a matter of like, are we ready for more? And I'm not sure that we're ready. It's about getting us ready, and hopefully we can get one another ready for this. I don't know, man. Like how often in history has have we been ready to make the necessary changes that we've made to give people their humanity and their rights? Like, I just feel like there's been many times in history, particularly with regard to black liberation, where, you know, laws had to be enacted just for black people to be treated like human beings. And to this day, there are people who still demonstrate a profound inability to play according to the new rules. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know if it'll be... I don't know if God is trying to get us ready or trying to get us as ready as he can before he's like, okay, this has gone long on this has gone on long enough. This is the way it needs to be and y'all better step in line or there's going to be a problem, you know what I'm saying? 
obviously the former is the best way to do it. Like people are best to get ready before the changes come. But at the same time, I don't know if that's going to happen. I kind of think the Lord is going to have to force our hand with regard to the realization of the humanity of our LGBTQ siblings. I don't think the whole church is going to be ready when that day finally comes. Yeah, not the whole church. That's definitely true. I think there's going to be some people who will, uh, will will complain. All these people who talk about, well, you're not sustaining the prophet. Well, they're not going to be sustaining the prophet on that day. They're going to say, well, the prophet done messed up. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's the real irony is that they're not really sustaining the prophet. They're sustaining their image of the prophet. And yes. if something happens to damage that image, well, th- th- their their support will completely shrivel up. Yeah. Right. Because if President Nelson came out tomorrow with a revelation that says, whoops, you know, we were wrong and, and it's past time we, we were right about LGBTs and now LGBTs have full access to everything uh, in the church, there's going to be a lot of people who said, uh-oh, the prophet got it wrong. Yeah, we all do that to a certain extent, but conversation for another day. Like probably one of these days we should really have an episode where we go into greater detail about the role of prophets. I, I've noticed that we've been talking about that a bit in the last few episodes and particularly you know we did spend some time discussing it on uh, you know our conference episode but that may merit a, an entirely new conversation one of these days. Right but that does bring us back to one of the best things about King Benjamin is that he was a, a prophet king who uh, recognized his weaknesses and he recognized his equality with everyone else. And he's like, I yeah. know better than you are. Yeah. We're all dust. Um, and he, the first thing he did was the best things of what prophets do is when they get the attention, they, they immediately point to Christ and get out of the way. Yeah. Big time. That's probably all I have to say about our, this section of the Book of Mormon. I'm looking forward to talking about the rest of King Benjamin's speech next week. Yeah. Ooh, that that is gonna be that's gonna be a lot of fun if if that's the right word. I'm just going to really appreciate the discussion that the next that the rest of King Benjamin's sermon is going to bring. But if there's nothing else that uh, we want to discuss with uh, this first part of King Benjamin's sermon before we wrap up, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so Derek, can you tell the people where to find us? Um, They can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are still not on Snapchat and TikTok. Oops. Stop asking. Like, we still don't know how those <laughs> things work. Yeah. Maybe we should one get of these some days. of these, like, young people to help us figure that out. Uh, yeah, I'm going to find some under 25 listeners of the show and just get them to volunteer and open us a, open us a Snapchat or something. I don't know. At the end of the day, this podcast is just our primary means of Beyond the Block's mission. We want to use all kinds of mediums, whatever mediums we can to get our message out there. And uh, right now it's just that the podcast is our primary means of doing it. But one of these days we're going to figure out these other mediums and uh, then it's really going to be on. Uh, We also want to put a couple thank yous out there. Uh, Thanks to David Doyle, who's been uh, editing 
a lot of our transcripts. Lauren Johns as well. Thank you. Tamara Kemsley for editing our podcast episodes recently. Really appreciate that and making us sound good. Um, a couple of, just by way of announcement, on the 19th, we're going to be doing another AMA on our Facebook page at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, which means 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time for y'all that are in the Mountain West. Um, we really enjoyed the one we got to do with you guys. I What was it? Three weeks ago, a month ago. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Like these questions brought out stuff that we probably wouldn't have otherwise talked about, and so yeah, hop on and and ask us anything. About to say, it's just always a pleasure to to interact with you guys, regardless, because it just really lets us have our finger on the pulse of our listeners and what you guys want to talk about, what you guys are thinking about, what you guys are studying. You know, figure out the direction of the show and the things we want to address. Also on the nineteenth. We are going to be doing a live video Sunday. We're going to be teaching a live video Sunday school class via Zoom sponsored by the Dialogue Journal. So I believe that will be streamed live on Facebook through the Dialogue Journal's Facebook page. I think that's at noon. I'm not entirely sure what time that's going to be, but I think that's what time the last Sunday school they did was. And, uh, oh, Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh, she's actually going to be teaching the class this Sunday, so... I definitely would encourage you guys to check that out if you're available on Sunday, presumably at noon. That'll be on the Dialogue Journal's Facebook page. Yeah, that sounds really good. Well, then on that note, thank you guys for listening. It's been a pleasure till we meet again next week.